Part Nineteen of the Book of the National Parks. This LibriVox recording is in the public domain. The Book of the National Parks by Robert Sterling Yard. Glaciered Peaks and Painted Shales. Glacier National Park, Northwestern Montana. Area one thousand five hundred thirty-four square miles. One. To say that Glacier National Park is the Canadian Rockies done in Grand Canyon colors is to express a small part of a complicated fact. Glacier is so much less and more. It is less in its exhibit of ice and snow. Both are dying glacial regions, and Glacier is hundreds of centuries nearer the end. No longer can it display snowy ranges in August and long, sinuous, Alaska-like glaciers at any time. Nevertheless, it has its glaciers, sixty or more of them perched upon high rocky shelves, the beautiful shrunken reminders of one-time monsters. Also it has the precipice-walled cirques and painted lake-studded valleys which these monsters left for the enjoyment of today. It is these cirques and valleys which constitute Glacier's unique feature, which make it incomparable of its kind. Glacier's innermost sanctuaries of grandeur are comfortably accessible and intimately enjoyable for more than two months each summer. The greatest places of the Canadian Rockies are never accessible comfortably. Alpinists may clamber over their icy crevasses and scale their slippery heights in August, but the usual traveler will view their noblest spectacles from hotel porches or valley trails. This comparison is useful, because both regions are parts of the same geological and scenic development in which Glacier may be said to be scenically, though by no means geologically, completed, and the Canadian Rockies still in the making. A hundred thousand years or more from now, the Canadian Rockies may have reached, except for coloring, the present scenic state of Glacier. Glacier National Park hangs down from the Canadian boundary line in northwestern Montana, where it straddles the Continental Divide. Adjoining it on the north is the Waterton Lakes Park, Canada. The Blackfeet Indian Reservation borders it on the east. Its southern boundary is Marias Pass, through which the Great Northern Railway crosses the crest of the Rocky Mountains. Its western boundary is the north fork of the Flathead River. The park contains 1,534 square miles. Communication between the east and west sides within the park is only by trail across passes over the Continental Divide. There are parts of America quite as distinguished as Glacier, Mount McKinley for its enormous snowy mass and stature, Yosemite for the quality of its valley's beauty, Mount Rainier for its massive radiating glaciers, Crater Lake for its color range in pearls and blues, Grand Canyon for its stupendous painted gulf, but there is no part of America or the Americas or of the world to match it of its kind. In respect to the particular wondrous thing these glaciers of old left behind them when they shrank to shelved trifles, there is no other." At Glacier one sees what he never saw elsewhere, and never will see again, except at Glacier. There are mountains everywhere, but no others carved into shapes quite like these. Cirques in all lofty ranges, but not cirques just such as these, and because of these unique bordering highlands, there are nowhere else lakes having the particular kind of charm possessed by Glacier's lakes. Visitors seldom comprehend Glacier, hence they are mute, or praise in generalities, or vague superlatives. Those who have not seen other mountains find the unexpected and are puzzled. Those who have seen other mountains fail to understand the difference in these. 
I have never heard comparison with any region except the Canadian Rockies, and this seldom very intelligent. I miss the big glaciers and snowy mountain tops, says the traveller of one type. You can really see something here besides snow, and how stunning it all is, says the traveller of another type. My God, man, where are your artists? cried an Englishman, who had come to St. Mary Lake, to spend a night, and was finishing his week. They ought to be here in regiments. Not that this is the greatest thing in the world, but that there's nothing else in the world like it. Yet this emotional traveller, who had seen the Himalayas, Andes, and Canadian Rockies, could not tell me clearly why it was different. Neither could the others explain why they liked it better than the Canadian Rockies, or why its beauty puzzled and disturbed them. It is only he whom the intelligent travel has educated to analyze and distinguish who sees in the fineness and the extraordinary distinction of Glacier's mountain forms the completion of the more heroic undevelopment north of the border. 2. The elements of Glacier's personality are so unusual that it will be difficult, if not impossible, to make phrase describe it. Comparison fails. Photographs will help, but not very efficiently, because they do not convey its size, color, and reality, or perhaps I should say its unreality, for there are places like Two Medicine Lake in still pale mid-morning, St. Mary Lake during one of its gold sunsets, and the cirques of the South Fork of the Belly River, under all conditions, which never can seem actual. To picture Glacier as nearly as possible, imagine two mountain ranges roughly parallel in the north, where they pass the continental divide between them across a magnificent high intervening valley, and in the south, merging into a wild and apparently planless massing of high peaks and ranges. Imagine these mountains repeating everywhere huge pyramids, enormous stone gables, elongated cones, and many other unusual shapes, including numerous sawtooth edges which rise many thousand feet upward from swelling sides, and suggest nothing so much as overturned keelboats. Imagine ranges glacier-bitten alternately on either side with cirques of three or four thousand feet of precipitous depth. Imagine these cirques often so nearly meeting that the intervening walls are knife-like edges. Miles of such walls carry the continental divide, and occasionally these cirques meet and the intervening wall crumbles and leaves a pass across the divide. Imagine places where cirque walls have been so bitten outside as well as in that they stand like amphitheaters, builded up from foundations, instead of gouged out of rock from above. Imagine these mountains, plentifully snow-spattered upon their northern slopes, and bearing upon their shoulders many small and beautiful glaciers, perched upon rock shelves above and back of the cirques, left by the greater glaciers of which they are the remainders. These glaciers are nearly always wider than they are long. Of these I have seen only three with elongated lobes. One is the Blackfeet Glacier, whose interesting west lobe is conveniently situated for observation south of Gunsight Lake, and another, romantically beautiful Agassiz Glacier, in the far northwest of the park, whose ice currents converge in a tongue which drops steeply to its snout. These elongations are complete miniatures, each exhibiting in little more than half a mile of length all usual glacial phenomena, including caves and icefalls. Occasionally, as on the side of Mount Jackson at Gunsight Pass, and east of it, one notices small elongated glaciers occupying clefts in steep slopes. The largest and most striking of these tongued glaciers 
is the westernmost of the three Carter glaciers on the slopes of Mount Carter. It cascades its entire length into Bowman Valley, and Marius R. Campbell's suggestion that it should be renamed the Cascading Glacier deserves consideration. Imagine deep rounded valleys emerging from these cirques and twisting snake-like among enormous and sometimes grotesque rock masses, which often are inconceivably twisted and tumbled, those of each drainage basin converging fan-like to its central valley. Sometimes a score or more of cirques, great and small, unite their valley streams for the making of a river. Seven principal valleys, each the product of such a group, emerge from the east side of the park, thirteen from the west. Imagine hundreds of lakes whose waters, fresh run from snowfield and glacier, brilliantly reflect the odd surrounding landscape. Each glacier has its lake or lakes of robin's egg blue. Every successive shelf of every glacial stairway has its lake, one or more, and every valley has its greater lake or string of lakes. Glacier is preeminently the park of lakes. When all is said and done, they constitute its most distinguished single element of supreme beauty. For several of them, enthusiastic admirers loudly claim world preeminence. And finally, imagine this picture done in soft glowing colors. Not only the blue sky, the flowery meadows, the pine-green valleys, and the innumerable many-hued waters, but the rocks, the mountains, and the cirques besides. The glaciers of old penetrated the most colorful depths of earth's skin, the very ancient Algonquian strata, that from which a part of the Grand Canyon also was carved. At this point, the rocks appear in four differently colored layers. The lowest of these is called the Alton Limestone. There are about 1,600 feet of it, pale blue within, weathering pale buff. Whole yellow mountains of this rock hang upon the eastern edge of the park. Next above the Alton lies 3,400 feet of Apicuni Argolite, or dull green shale. The tint is pale, deepening to that familiar in the lower part of the Grand Canyon. It weathers every darkening shade to very dark greenish-brown. Next above lies 2,200 feet of Grinnell argillite, or red shale, a dull rock of varying pinks which weathers many shades of red and purple, deepening in places almost to black. There is some gleaming white quartzite mixed with both these shales. Next above lies more than 4,000 feet of Saya limestone, very solid, very massive, iron-gray, with an insistent flavor of yellow and weathering buff. This heavy stratum is the most impressive part of the glacier landscape. Horizontally through its middle runs a dark broad ribbon of diorite, a rock as hard as granite, which once, when molten, burst from below and forced its way between horizontal beds of limestone, and occasionally, as in the swift current and triple divide passes, there are dull iron-black lavas in heavy twisted masses. Above all of these colored strata once lay still another shale, a very brilliant red. Fragments of this, which geologists call the Kintla Formation, may be seen topping mountains here and there in the northern part of the park. Imagine these rich strata, hung east and west across the landscape, and sagging deeply in the middle, so that a horizontal line would cut all colors diagonally. Now imagine a softness of line, as well as color, resulting probably from the softness of the rock. There is none of the hard insistence, the uncompromising definiteness of the granite landscape. And imagine further an impression of antiquity, a feeling akin to that with which one enters a medieval ruin 
or sees the pyramids of Egypt. Only here is the look of immense, unmeasured, immeasurable age. More than at any place, except perhaps the rim of the Grand Canyon, does one seem to stand in the presence of the infinite, an instinct which, while it baffles analysis, is sound, for there are few rocks of the earth's skin so aged as these ornate shales and limestones. And now, at last, you can imagine Glacier. 3. But with Glacier this is not enough. To see, to realize in full its beauty, still leaves one puzzled. One of the peculiarities of the landscape, due perhaps to its differences, is its insistence upon explanation. How came this prehistoric plain, so etched with cirques and valleys, as to leave standing only worm-like crests, knife-edged walls, amphitheaters, and isolated peaks? The answer is the story of a romantic episode in the absorbing history of America's making. Somewhere between forty and six hundred million years ago, according to the degree of conservatism controlling the geologist who does the calculating, these lofty mountains were deposited in the shape of muddy sediments on the bottom of shallow freshwater lakes, whose waves left many ripple marks upon the soft muds of its shores, fragments of which, hardened now to shale, are frequently found by tourists. So ancient was the period that these deposits lay next above the primal Archean rocks, and mark, therefore, almost the beginning of accepted geological history. Life was then so nearly at its beginnings that the forms which Walcott found in the Saya limestone were not at first fully accepted as organic. Thereafter, during a time so long that none may even estimate it, certainly for many millions of years, the history of the region leaves traces of no extraordinary change. It sank possibly thousands of feet beneath the fresh waters tributary to the sea, which once swept from the Gulf of Mexico to the Arctic, and accumulated there sediments, which today are scenic limestones and shales, and doubtless other sediments above these which have wholly passed away. It may have alternated above and below water level many times, as our southwest has done, eventually under earth pressures concerning whose cause many theories have lived and died, it rose to remain until our times. Then, millions of years ago, but still recently as compared with the whole vast lapse we are considering, came the changes which seem dramatic to us as we look back upon them accomplished, but which came to pass so slowly that no man, had man then lived, could have noticed a single step of progress in the course of a long life. Under earth pressures, the skin buckled and the rocky mountains rose. At some stage of this process, the range cracked along its crest from what is now Marias Pass to a point just over the Canadian border, and a couple of hundred miles farther north, from neighborhood of Banff to the northern end of the Canadian Rockies. Then the great overthrust followed. Side pressures of inconceivable power forced upward the western edge of this crack, including the entire crust from the Algonquian strata up, and thrust it over the eastern edge. During the overthrusting, which may have taken a million years, and during the millions of years since, the frosts have chiseled open and the rains have washed away all the overthrust strata, the accumulations of the geological ages from Algonquian times down, except only that one bottom layer. This alone remained for the three ice invasions of the glacial age to carve into the extraordinary area which is called today the Glacier National Park. The Lewis overthrust, 
so called because it happened to the Lewis Range, is ten to fifteen miles wide. The eastern boundary of the park roughly defines its limit of progress. Its signs are plain to the eye taught to perceive them. The yellow mountains on the eastern edge, near the gateway to Lake McDermott, lie on top of the Blackfeet Indian Reservation, whose surface is many millions of years younger and quite different in coloring. Similarly, Chief Mountain, at the entrance of the Belly River Valley, owes much of its remarkable distinction to the incompatibility of its form and color with the prairie upon which it lies, but out of which it seems to burst. The bottom of McDermott Falls, at Many Glacier Hotel, is plainly a younger rock than the colored Algonquian limestones which form its brink. Perhaps thousands of years after the overthrust was accomplished, another tremendous faulting still further modified the landscape of today. The overthrust edge cracked lengthwise, this time west of the Continental Divide, all the way from the Canadian line southward nearly to Marias Pass. The edge of the strata west of this crack sank perhaps many thousands of feet, leaving great precipices on the west side of the divide, similar to those on the east side. There was this great difference, however, in what followed. The elongated gulf or ditch thus formed became filled with the deposits of later geological periods. This whole process, which also was very slow in movement, is important in explaining the conformation and scenic peculiarities of the west side of the park, which, as the tourist sees it today, is remarkably different from those of the east side. Here the great limestone ranges, glaciered, cirqued, and precipiced as on the east side, suddenly give place to broad, undulating plains, which constitute practically the whole of the great west side, from the base of the mountains, on the east, to the valley of the Flathead, which forms the park's western boundary. These plains are grown thickly with splendid forests. Cross ranges, largely glacier-built, stretch west from the high mountains, subsiding rapidly, and between these ranges lie long winding lakes, forest-grown to their edges, which carry the western drainage of the continental divide through outlet streams into the flathead. The inconceivable lapse of time covered in these titanic operations of nature, and their excessive slowness of progress, robbed them of much of their dramatic quality. Perhaps an inch of distance was an extraordinary advance for the Lewis overthrust to make in any ordinary year, and doubtless there were lapses of centuries where no measurable advance was made. Yet sometimes sudden settlings, accompanied by more or less extended earthquakes, must have visibly altered local landscapes. Were it possible by some such mental foreshortening as that by which the wizards of the screen compress a life into a minute, for imagination to hasten this progress into the compass of a few hours, how overwhelming would be the spectacle! How tremendously would loom this advancing edge, which at first we may conceive as having enormous thickness! How it must have cracked, crumbled, and fallen in frequent titanic crashes as it moved forward! It does not need the imagination of Doré to picture this advance. Thus hastened in fancy. Grim, relentless as death, its enormous towering head lost in eternal snows, its feet shaken by earthquakes, accumulating giant glaciers only to crush them into powder, resting, then pushing forward in slow, smashing, reverberating shoves. How the accumulations of all periods may be imagined crashing together into the depths. Silurian gastropods, strange Devonian fishes, enormous Triassic reptiles, the rich and varied shells of the Jurassic, 
the dinosaurs and primitive birds of the Cretaceous, the little early horses of the Eocene, and Miocene's camels and mastodons mingling their fossil remnants in a democracy of ruin to defy the eternal ages. It all happened, but unfortunately for a romantic conception, it did not happen with dramatic speed. Hundreds, thousands, sometimes millions of years intervened between the greater stages of progress which, with intervening lesser stages, merged into a seldom broken quietude such as that which impresses today's visitor to the mountain tops of Glacier National Park. And who can say that the landscape which today's visitor, with the inborn arrogance of man, looks upon as the thing which the ages have completed for his pleasure, may not merely represent a minor stage in a progress still more terrible. The grist of creation's past milling has disappeared. The waters of heaven, collected and stored in snowfields and glaciers, to be released in seasonal torrents, have washed it all away. Not a sign remains today, save here and there, perhaps a fragment of Cretaceous coal. All has been ground to powder, and carried off by flood and stream, to enrich the soils, and upbuild later strata, in the drainage basins of the Saskatchewan, the Columbia, and the Mississippi. It is probable that little remained but the Algonquian shales and limestones when the Ice Age sent southward the first of its three great invasions. Doubtless already there were glaciers there of sorts, but the lowering temperatures which accompanied the ice sheets developed local glaciers so great of size that only a few mountain tops were left exposed. It was then that these extraordinary cirques were carved. There were three such periods during the Ice Age, between which and after which stream erosion resumed its untiring sway. The story of the ice is written high upon glaciers' walls and far out on the eastern plains. 4. Into this wonderland the visitor enters by one of two roads. Either he leaves the railroad at Glacier Park on the east side of the Continental Divide, or at Belton on the west side. In either event he can cross to the other side only afoot or on horseback over passes. The usual way is in through Glacier Park. There is a large hotel at the station, from which automobile stages run northward to chalets at Two Medicine Lake, the Cutbank Valley, and St. Mary Lake, and to the Many Glacier Hotel and chalets at Lake McDermott. A road also reaches Lake McDermott from Canada by way of Bab, and Canadian visitors can reach the trails at the head of Waterton Lake by boat from their own Waterton Lakes Park. Those entering at Belton, where the park headquarters are located, find chalets at the railroad station and an excellent hotel near the head of Lake MacDonald. There is also a comfortable chalet close to the Sperry Glacier. To see Glacier as thoroughly as Glacier deserves, and to draw freely on its abundant resources of pleasure and inspiration, one must travel the trails and pitch his tent where day's end brings him. But that does not mean that Glacier cannot be seen and enjoyed by those to whom comfortable hotel accommodations are a necessity, or even by those who find trail traveling impossible. Visitors therefore fall into three general classes, all of which may study scenery which quite fully covers the range of Glacier's national phenomena and peculiar beauty. The largest of these classes consists of those who can travel, or think they can travel, only in vehicles, and can find satisfactory accommodations only in good hotels. The intermediate class includes those who can, at a pinch, ride ten or twelve miles on comfortably saddled horses, which walk the trails at two or three miles an hour, 
and who do not object to the somewhat primitive but thoroughly comfortable overnight accommodations of the chalets. Finally comes the small class, which constantly will increase, of those who have the time and inclination to leave the beaten path with tent and camping outfit for the splendid wilderness and the places of supreme magnificence which are only for those who seek. The man, then, whose tendency to gout, let us say, forbids him ride a horse or walk more than a couple of easy miles a day, may nevertheless miss nothing of Glacier's meaning and magnificence, provided he takes the trouble to understand. But he must take the trouble. He must comprehend the few examples that he sees. This is his penalty for refusing the rich experience of the trail, which, out of its very fullness, drives meaning home with little mental effort. His knowledge must be got from six places only, which may be reached by vehicle, at least three of which, however, may be included among the world's great scenic places. He can find at Two Medicine, St. Mary, and McDermott superb examples of Glacier's principal scenic elements. Entering at Glacier Park, he will have seen the range from the plains, an important beginning. Already approaching from the east, he has watched it grow wonderfully on the horizon. So suddenly do these painted mountains spring from the grassy plain, that it is a relief to recognize in them the advance guard of the Lewis overthrust. Vast fragments of upheavals of the depths, pushed eastward by the centuries to their final resting places upon the surface of the prairie. From the hotel porches they glow gray and yellow and purple and rose and pink, according to the natural coloring of their parts and the will of the sun, a splendid, ever-changing spectacle. End of Part 19